0: Hello and welcome to Basket Bubble, the podcast about the NBA and life inside the Walt Disney World bubble. I'm Matthew Moore and I am joined as always by my co-host Bodie. Bodie, it's been uh, a hell of a week here in the bubble and here with the NBA, wouldn't you say?
1: That is definitely true. <laughs> yeah, def- definitely true.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll just jump right into it here on Wednesday night prior to the Milwaukee Bucks and Orlando Magic game, game five of that series, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks did what they called boycott. They, uh, as some people would describe it, it's more of a strike. (laughs) They decided to not play. They didn't take the court, didn't really give the Orlando Magic any sort of heads up either, it seems. And the game was postponed. And from that, the games from the Houston Rockets and Oklahoma City Thunder and the Lakers and the Portland Trail Blazers on Wednesday also got postponed. Now, obviously, these postponements, this strike that happened on Wednesday night comes on the heels of the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where an unarmed black man was shot in the back seven times, taken to the hospital, and nearly died and is now paralyzed. And with Milwaukee being just less than an hour from Kenosha, Wisconsin, the Milwaukee Bucks decided enough was enough and they needed to make a statement. It should go without saying that Bodie and I are straight white men and the most privileged of the privileged when it comes to that classification. And it's, it's easy for us to sit back and say, like, man, this is a real bummer that we missed out on a night of basketball. But at the same time, seeing what's happening in society, seeing what's happening in Kenosha and in Ferguson, where Bodie and I both at one point lived 15 minutes away from, uh, during the shooting of Michael Brown, just being, of this moment and recognizing the gravitas and the importance of what's happening, it's, it's important. And we should also point out that the WNBA also decided to postpone all of their games on Wednesday night. The NHL did the same in Major League Baseball. We saw the Milwaukee Brewers postpone their game against the Cincinnati Reds. We saw the Seattle Mariners and the San Diego Padres postpone. San Francisco Giants, Los Angeles Dodgers, that game also was postponed. Bodie, as an NBA fan, what was your response to seeing all of this occur?
1: Just I I I just watched. I, I just watched and scrolled Twitter just passively there there was nothing I could do. There was nothing for me to say because it's not about me at all. It was about Jacob Blake and his family. It was about these, all the players that spoke up about things that have happened to them in the past, other players that they know that have dealt with these things. It was about the commentators who told stories about their lives and the lives of people that they know. And The thing that sticks out to me now thinking about this in hindsight is this was the NBA making me actually feel a loss. I'm not equating NBA games with somebody's life or anything like that, but it's very easy to hear about somebody dying on the news And if you don't know them, it's very much just like that sucks, but it doesn't necessarily get you deep down because, yeah, it's not a direct connection with you, but by the players striking, and it is a strike, but by them striking for those end up being three days of games, they made us confront something they they made somebody like me realize i don't know if that's the right word realize because i i know it's a i I know it's hard for these families
0: it certainly made you feel it on a more visceral level though right
1: yeah it became more immediate It, it became yeah they they brought that story into my personal life my my interests my my hobbies which is that's important all on its own right there.
0: You talked a little bit about commentators. Uh, I've got a couple clips here that we're going to play. This first one is inside the NBA's studio show. The pregame show features Kenny Smith, who is a former player, uh, is one of the go-to analysts when we look at basketball. And uh, listen to what happened here right before what was supposed to be the game on tnt on wednesday evening listen here
2: this is this is tough i mean right now my head is like ready to explode like just in the thoughts of what's going on and uh i don't know if i'm even appropriate enough to say it what the players are feeling and how they're feeling and um I haven't talked to any of the players. I'm just, like, coming in, even, like, driving here and getting into into the studio, hearing calls and people talking. And for me, I think the biggest thing now is to kind of, as a black man, as a former player, I think it's best for me to support the players and just not be here tonight. And figure out what happens after that. Yeah. I, I
0: just don't feel comfortable. And I respect that. Buddy, when we think about Kenny Smith walking off from the studio there on Wednesday night, what was your gut reaction when you saw that happen?
1: It's a big deal. It's just, it's, it's just a really big deal. And we don't know how people are going to react to it. I don't know if Kenny knew how he was going to react to it. And... The rest of the crew, I don't know how much longer they stayed on that show after Kenny walked out. I don't know if they went the full time, but Chuck stayed, Shaq stayed, Ernie er- Ernie gets his Emmys for a reason, for moments like this, just how he handles things. But nobody knows how they're going to react to these things, and to see it happen raw like that in real time is another way of it being immediate it doesn't feel staged it doesn't feel hokey i don't think kenny smith is that kind of person he's, he's never he's never seen that way it helps drive home the importance of this to to these men
0: yeah and then once kenny smith walked off Ernie and the crew took it to Chris Weber, who was supposed to be color commentator for one of the games on Wednesday evening, and he took a moment to share some of his thoughts about what was happening, what had happened. Uh, Listen here to this clip.
2: I wanted to have a voice in here because I feel like we only have the same couple voices talking during these times. So it was very important for me to come over here. I keep hearing the question like, what's next? What's next? Well, you got to plan what's next. You have to figure out what's next. I'm very proud of the players. I don't know the next steps. Don't really care what the next steps are because the first steps are to garner attention. And they have everybody's attention around the world right now. Then leadership and others will get together and decide the next steps. So we know it won't end tomorrow. We know that there's been a million marches and nothing will change tomorrow. We know vote. We keep hearing vote. Everybody vote. But I'm here to speak for those that are always marginalized. Those that live in these neighborhoods where we preach and tell them to vote and walk away. Charles Barkley came to my high school. Just seeing him in the locker room, seeing his hands and his body, that inspired me. You can't be something till you see it. And when I tell you the little kids that have called me upset, I have a godson that has autism and I just had to explain to him why we aren't playing. I have young nephews that I've had to talk to about death before they've even seen it in a movie. If not now, when? If not during a pandemic <laughs> and countless lives being lost, if not now, when? That's, that's all I just want to hear from the rest of the night while everybody's pontificating and thinking and soapboxing and all of that. We know nothing is going to change. We get it. If Martin Luther King got shot and risked his life, Mega Evers, if we've seen this and all of our heroes constantly taken down, we understand it's not going to end. But that does not mean, young men, that you don't do anything. Don't listen to these people telling you don't do anything because it's not going to end right away. You are starting something for the next generation and the next generation to take over. Do you have to be smart? Yes. Do you have to make sure that you have a plan? Yes. Do you have to be articulate about that plan? Yes. All of those things. But that's what you're going to do. They're professionals. They know how to be the best of themselves. And so I applaud it. I applaud it because it is the young people. It is the young people leading the way. And I applaud them.
0: One of the things that stuck out to me was when he talked about having a godson with autism and having to explain to him why they weren't playing basketball that evening. And I felt that on a very visceral level myself because... Just a couple of days ago, uh, I have an older brother who's two years older than me who has autism, and he FaceTimed me the other night and uh, started the call by just looking very doe-eyed, and he said, I'm sorry. And I didn't I didn't exactly know why he was sorry, and so I just responded like, it's okay, like, why are you sorry? And he had been posting some things on Facebook that were talking about being Blue Lives Matter and how we didn't need to defund the police and a lot of borderline racist things. And I had commented on one of his posts on Facebook and said something to the effect of, it's a little more complicated than this, Michael. I think you should take this post down. And he called me and was just very upset with himself, I think, in a lot of ways that he knew that he didn't fully understand what was happening and he wanted to, but he couldn't. And just me sitting on the phone with him trying to explain the nuance and complexities of why some people are saying defund the police and why that doesn't actually mean fully getting rid of and defunding police. I felt a lot of empathy for Chris Weber in that moment. And so I know how complicated and frustrating it is in my life. And I can't imagine being a black man and having to have those sorts of conversations too. The other thing that stuck out to me in this, Bodie, was when Chris Weber talked about Charles Barkley coming to his high school. And for me, that felt really interesting because in a very, very, very different way, I remember going to a very, very small, middle of nowhere high school, and I had no idea what it looked like to pursue journalism or to pursue music or to do anything that wasn't fixing tractors or being a nurse or being a farmer or something along those lines. And I can only imagine to the exponential degree what sort of joy and possibility it brought to Chris Weber and his teammates to see like a real life professional basketball player in their locker room and to say, man, Maybe I could do that. Maybe there is a way to get out of here and to do that sort of thing. And so that was something else that really stuck out to me that Chris Weber said.
1: I think that speaks to another story that happened this week, which was the death of actor Chadwick Bozeman. And when you look at a lot of the videos that were posted about him going to hospitals or pictures of kids playing with the Marvel action figures and doing the Wakanda forever symbol, Or there's a great speech that he gave at a a commencement address at a university. It speaks to representation and what representation means for peoples of all color, but specifically minorities, people of color, those that aren't the privileged, those that aren't in power. A lot of what, and I'm saying this as a white man, so I'm going off of what I have heard black men and women say in the media about this and seeing it from people i know too when you get to see somebody who looks like you or acts like you in doing something heroic whether it be a superhero or charles barkley coming to your high school a professional basketball player and you can see that that could be me too seeing that upends what you normally see growing up as a child what tv and movies tell you what politicians might say how parties might just treat you as as an issue or as a giant voting block instead of as an individual when you see yourself in a movie or you see yourself in in a politician when you see when there is somebody who looks like you running the country it shows you that you can do it too and Chadwick was that person to a whole lot of people. And I think even NBA players look to him for that. LeBron gave his tribute before the game Saturday night. He was posting about that movie a lot when it came out. I think even to grown men, seeing people that know their experience, know their life, make it. Or just do something great with their life is a huge inspiration to continue on with what they're doing, whether it be playing basketball games in a bubble or trying to just improve your community in a small or large way. And I'm wondering if that's one of the reasons the players went back to play. They are that face. To a lot of young kids, a lot of people our age, people older than us, they are that face, that representation of, look what we can do with our gifts, but look what we can do with our influence. And I think they're really understanding the influence part of it like they haven't in a very, very long time.
0: Buddy, do you have any words of optimism for for basketball fans in the, the coming weeks with the remainder of, of the playoffs going on, not necessarily from a game analysis perspective, but more of a sociological perspective?
1: Yes, I I think these are the... I'm not going to say they are the smartest league. The players are smarter than any other players in any other league, but I think players in all sports are understanding the power and the influence that they have and are finding ways to use that to make one, their sport better, but make the world at large better because they understand the responsibility that they have as individuals, but as role models. Yes. But just people I, I watched A Spider-Man movie today so with great power comes great responsibility is in my head and it's true and it's kind of a joke now to say that line but it's true and these players have they have great power and they are understanding that power and they are understanding that responsibility and if I may say one other thing not on the optimism part but just something else that people mentioned we had talked early on in the bubble about mental health issues and how that was affecting players and other people in the bubble and that got brought up again in all of this. If all these players were at home playing playoff games in their their normal arenas, getting to see their families, you might not have seen this much distress, this much anxiety, just Players not knowing what they could handle, I, I'm not sure the players knew how much they can handle. They, a lo- I think, a lot of them thought the season could have ended Wednesday night. So as we watch these games going forward, if something seems weird with somebody, if something seems off, I don't just automatically think, "Oh, he's having problems handling the bubble or having problems mentally of some kind." But just keep it in your mind have compassion towards what these players are trying to go through.
0: And now we're at last possession. On October 17th, 1961, the NBA champion Boston Celtics visited Lexington, Kentucky to play an exhibition game against the St. Louis Hawks. Now, the purpose of this matchup was to drum up interest in the NBA in a new market by showcasing former University of Kentucky stars Frank Ramsey of the Celtics and Cliff Hagen of the Hawks. Prior to the game, future Hall of Famers and black Celtics players Sam Jones and Thomas Sanders went to the hotel cafe for some coffee but were refused service. Ma'am, we're staying at the hotel. Jones told the hostess, stunned. I'm sorry, but we don't serve Negroes, he recalls her responding. Jones and Sanders headed to the elevator and ran into teammate Bill Russell, who was the standout star of the Celtics and one of the first black stars in the NBA. The players went to the Celtics coach Red Auerbach's room to inform him they were done, leaving. Coach asked the players to reconsider, asserting that the seats were already sold And the game would be played. But Russell would not be swayed. He made it clear that it was better for him and his black teammates to walk away and leave Lexington with a non integrated game. I told Red we were leaving, Russell recalled in 2013. I said it was because it was important to me that everybody, everywhere, knows that the black players are deciding they'll stand up for themselves. It should also be noted that the University of Kentucky basketball program infamously took until 1969 to incorporate a black player under their longtime coach Adolph Rupp, whom the arena is named for in Lexington. Black athletes making political statements is nothing new. Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, all of these names that us white people look back on with a sort of revisionist history, did a lot of stuff that made white people real mad at the time. In 1944, Jackie Robinson was in the U.S. Army, and upon waiting results from tests done on his ankle, he boarded a bus with a white officer's wife. Although the bus had been deemed unsegregated, the bus driver insisted that Robinson move to the back of the bus. He refused, which led him to being court-martialed. Robinson was charged with insubordination, disturbing the peace, drunkenness—by the way, Robinson was a staunch teetotaler—conduct, unbecoming an officer, insulting a civilian woman, and refusing to obey the lawful orders of a superior officer. And all of this was before he even broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. In 1966, Muhammad Ali was drafted to serve in the Army during the Vietnam war But refused to go, saying, War is against the teachings of the Quran. I'm not trying to dodge the draft. We're not supposed to take part in no wars unless declared by Allah or the Messenger. We don't take part in Christian wars or wars of any unbelievers. In 1968, Kareem Abdul Jabbar boycotted the Olympics, stating that his decision to stay home during the 1968 games was in protest of the unequal treatment of African Americans in the United States. This list could go on for days, but I say all of this to make two points. The first is this. We have a long documented history of black athletes finding ways to use what little capital they have to bring attention to the injustices brought against black people across this nation. It didn't start with Jackie Robinson And it's not going to end with the Milwaukee Bucks, either. The Ringer's Jason Concepcion sums it up well on the NBA Desktop Show.
1: So, why the NBA? Why the WNBA? Because these are basically the only spheres where black men and women with some amount of power are able to have leverage, economic leverage, and cultural leverage over the white dudes
0: who own everything. The second is this. Black athletes have not been taken seriously as human beings for as long as we've had sports. How many times have you seen someone on Facebook claim, I'm done with the NFL if they don't start respecting my flag, or these NBA players just need to shut up and dribble? We view them as entertainers whose job is to be seen and not heard, and their political stances be damned. Now, this is pretty true of how we view most performers. Musicians and actors get this treatment as well. But it seems to me that these athletes in these leagues, predominantly black athletes playing for almost exclusively white-owned teams, are bearing the brunt of this. After the strike on Wednesday, the president's son-in-law and White House official, Jared Kushner, came out and said, quote, The NBA players are very fortunate that they have the financial position where they're able to take a night off work. They put a lot of slogans out, but I think what we need to do is turn that from slogans and signals to actual actions that are going to solve the problem. I'd like to see them start moving into concrete solutions that are productive. It should be noted that LeBron James started a public elementary school in 2018 in his hometown of Akron, Ohio. And one direct result of this strike by the NBA players led to many arenas being converted into polling places for the 2020 election. Both of these seem like pretty concrete and productive solutions to me. A day after the 1961 boycott, Bill Russell told reporters, quote, "...we've got to show our disapproval of this kind of treatment, or else the status quo will prevail." We have the same rights and privileges as anyone else and deserve to be treated accordingly. I hope we never have to go through this abuse again. But if it happens, we won't hesitate to take the same action again. 1961. That's when he said that. We still have a long way to go. Hell, it's been 60 years, and history still seems to be repeating itself. But these players are ready to finally maybe start putting an end to all of this soon. Basket Bubble is hosted by Matthew Moore. That's me and Bodie. That's him. Thank you again, Bodie. Thank you, Matthew. Our theme song is by Bad Snacks. Join us next week as we look at the rest of the playoff landscape and what to look for in round two. Stay safe out there, Bubbletonians. We'll see you next week.